Hi, Melanie here from Aviation Tours, unique itineraries for aviation enthusiasts, taking you to some of the most amazing air shows and events in the UK and Australia. They're leisurely, comfortable, fun, escorted, and to all the places you've been wanting to visit. If independent travels out of your comfort zone, or you just prefer the good company of fellow enthusiasts, on a tour taking in the best aviation, motoring and military museums, take a look at our website, aviationtoursnz.com, for more info and join us on the trip of a lifetime. Or call me for a chat on 021 076 8308. Wings Over Britain is proudly supported by the New Zealand Bomber Command Association. Telling the stories of Bomber Command and the New Zealanders who served. Wings Over Britain and the Wings Over New Zealand show greatly acknowledges the fantastic support from Peter and Carola Wheeler of the Hauraki Brewing Company. And we'd like to acknowledge the awesome support from Mel and Kev Salisbury and Aviation Tours NZ. And a huge thanks to all the others out there who kindly supported the tour and the series. Without them, the series wouldn't have been made. Vintage Aviation News is pleased to support Wings Over Britain and Wings Over New Zealand. And we'll be checking in with reports as Dave's tour progresses. Vintage Aviation News is an organization founded by a group of passionate vintage aviation enthusiasts who love to share the history and technology aviation museums preserve for the public. It's our intention to play a role in safeguarding the heritage of these beautiful machines by providing increased awareness and education through the use of internet-based digital media. Vintage Aviation News is an online news resource dedicated to warbirds, aviation museums, vintage aviation, and aviation heritage, and the many enthusiasts who wish to know more about them. The goal of this site is to provide fresh, daily news content for a large community of aviation fans who visit our page regularly. Vintage Aviation News Online can be found on your usual social media channels and at VintageAviationNews.com. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Well, I'm with Dave Gledhill at Thorpe Camp, uh, right next to Woodhall Spa Airfield that used to be. Uh, hi, Dave. Hi, good morning. Good to see you. And good to see you. Good to meet you. Um, now, you're a, an ex-RAF Phantom and Tornado Pilot, and you run a simulator here at Thorpe Camp uh, for a, tor a Tornado Simulator. 
That's correct. Yeah, I was I was actually a navigator. So I oh, sorry, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I tra I trained uh, traditionally on the Varsity and the Domini back okay. at Finningley back in the day. So I was kind of taught to be a Vulcan navigator at first. Oh, wow. But very quickly transitioned via the Jet Provost onto the uh, the Phantom in the early days. And uh, yeah, in the air defense role then. And then transitioned onto the Tornado when it first came into service, the F2 and then the F3. And that was around about 1986 or so. Right. And did another sort of seven or eight years on the tornado. Wow. Okay. So, um, tell me a little bit about the Phantom. What was that like to be flying? Great fun. It, it really had charisma. Um, the the back seat wasn't the best in the world. We always used to call it the ergonomic slum, and that was because it was kind of cobbled together. They, it was almost an afterthought. We didn't have gear indicators. We didn't have anything uh, clever like that. Okay. It literally was just the weapon system in the back seat. Um, and quite a claustrophobic environment, quite hot and sweaty because we didn't even have uh, air conditioning controls in the back. Oh, wow. So it, when you've flown a sortie in a Phantom, you knew it, yeah. but it was great fun. It was a fantastic aeroplane and very capable in its day. Wow. Okay. And so how did that compare with when you got onto the Tornado? Well, the Tornado should have been a big leap forward. And sadly, when the F2 came in at first, it wasn't. The, the, uh, the Fox Hunter radar didn't work very well. And it took us five years to get an interim fix in there and 10 years to fix it properly. Um, but when it was finally fixed, let's say about 95-ish, uh, it really was a capable aeroplane. Okay. That coincided with the, the data link coming in, the JTIDs, and it coincided with various defensive aids arriving as well. And by the end of its time, the, the, the F3 was a really capable aeroplane, but by then a little bit unloved, right. <laughs> which was a shame. <laughs> right. Dave very kindly put me into the simulator and some of this recording was recorded whilst I was in it, and we were just chatting. We start off with Dave actually talking about the simulator itself, and I got to have a fly of a couple of the different programs, as a Spitfire pilot and a Lancaster pilot. Production line at Wharton, and then they adapted it to make it into a simulator. When the Leeming squadrons folded, they, they literally gutted it, everything. Um, ripped out the wiring, ripped out the instruments and everything, and, and it was a shell. Chap up at uh, Selby, Jet Art Aviation, bought it. Yeah. But then Simon Pulford, the guy I bought it from, acquired it, and then he rebuilt the cockpits. And most of this is Simon's work, okay. bringing it back to what it was. It probably represents an aeroplane of about 93 to 95, that kind of era, yep. in terms of instrumentation. It was the first electric jet. So the head-up display, that's the first time we had a proper head-up display in, uh, in, in the RAF. Yep. Um, and you could fly it on that. It wasn't cleared officially to fly it on that, but we did anyway. Okay. And it was the inertial system in the back that fed the head-up display. But not only was it flight parameters, it was weapons as well up there. So big step forward. So it was the first electronic cockpit, which means the electronic head-down display moved into the centre there. Okay. And, and that was the centre of the displays. And the analogue instruments actually sat over here. So you flew it on that, but these were backup. Yeah. Missile monitoring system is here. That was the pilot's version. That told him what was on the airplane, yeah. uh, what status it was, and you could select stuff on there. But that function of selecting missiles and monitoring missiles came down onto the HOTAS in about 1990. So that okay. was the stage one uh, model. Um, so MMS there. This over here, ra radar homing and warning receiver, that was the kit that told us if somebody was looking at us. Yep. There was one system on the airplane, but two indicators, one in the front, one in the back, with two control panels. So whoever was, was, uh, had less work to do at the time could play around with the RHWR. Pilot's control panel was there. Um, basically, the rest of the stuff is systems. 
and uh, the, the less important stuff forward uh, uh, to the back. Yeah. Um, stuff that you will use when you're in the cockpit flying it, but there's the, uh, there's the undercarriage lever there. That was the wing sweep. In the RAF, we did that manually. Yep. There was an automatic system. The Saudis used it, but we didn't. We okay. Manually. All right. So uh, 25 wing, 33 wing, 45 wing, 58, seven, uh, 67. All manually selected. Throttles, um, unlike the Phantom, um, there were gates, so max mill, through the gate into burner, through the gate into combat. Um, it doesn't actually operate on this throttle, but that was the way it worked. If you rock them outboard, one selected lift dump, one selected thrust reverse. So once you'd gone into thrust reverse, when you open the throttles, push the old thrust forward. Okay. So, so that, was the, uh, that was the throttle arrangement. This was the pilot's hand controller. Not used a lot, but basically you could play around with the sidewinder heads. You could move them around manually using, right. using that little rascal there. Okay. But not used an awful lot at all. All the indicators there, wing sweep, uh, flat position, speed brake position is all down there. So that's the front cockpit. Oh, I should say here, um, and, and you'll be using this in the stick. It's actually reversed on the stick that we use because that's an F-18 stick out there. So the trimmer is there and the, uh, uh, the castellated switch is here. Uh, trigger on the back to launch weapons and gun. Yeah. RAM, SRAM, gun on that, which made a huge improvement over trying to poke around up here. Um, and then this was the air-to-air -air override. So that got the pilot into air combat modes with the radar. Okay. So he over overrode what we were in and back by playing around with that. So that's that's the setup of the, uh, the cockpit. Back here, You've got the um, uh, you've got the kit. Yep. So two TV tabs. Um, and traditionally, we would use radar on that side, and then we would use plan display on that side. Radar, obviously, what the radar was seeing out ahead of the airplane. Plan display was a god's eye view of the battle space. So all your radar information was fed onto that, plus air force bases, TACANs, civilian air, air bases, anything tanker tow lines. Yep. Missile engagement sounds all up on there. Okay. And uh, um, that, that was the way we looked at it. He could watch what I was doing in the back, so if he selected DU1, he'd see that TV, DU2, he'd see that one. That was my radar homing warning receiver indicator up there. Yep. Um, and that was controlled by my panel down here. So th that's the, the, uh, the, the displays, if you will. This thing came in about 1994 95, JTIDS, Link 16. And basically, that took all the feeds of everybody that's out there and fed it onto the TV tab. So in 95, the airplane changed completely. It was right. transformed. So people that say at the end of the tornado's life, oh, when it's bag of nails, it had the best situation awareness of anybody because of the, because of the Link 16. And that was that box there that did that. Okay. Um, in the early days, and the reason the F2 was such a basket case was there was a tiny little controller here from the GR1 with four buttons on it. And you had to do it all down here. So it was all a bit of a, a faff down there. Yeah. Bear in mind that these things, when they were up, all those generated soft keys on here. These were hard keys. You did a lot of stuff up and down, down there on the F2. Didn't work ever so well. So they introduced this in 1990 during the Stage 1 mods. Yeah. And that was... Uh, all, all the functions on there, plus a bunch of others, came up onto the hand controller, so you could do it all here. Okay. Which made a massive, massive change. Going around the cockpit, this is the radar control panel. So this was the, um, um, you selected the frequency of the main radar and the frequency for the sky flash missiles on there. And that turned the radar on. 
MMS, I had one in the back as well. Yeah. So if he was busy, I could take control, select weapons, jettison some weapons, do anything like that on there. He had to fire them. Yep. So the trigger was the only one that fired them off. Yeah. Um, we talked about that one. Um, over on the right there, mainly the, the, the navigation system. So you've got the main computer controls down there. And uh, you wouldn't guess, but it had a 64K computer <laughs> really? when it came to service. Yeah. <laughs> and even at the end, it only had 256K. So Gosh. and we loaded it with cassette tape. If you see that pull, you see that handle on the front of that box at the front inboard left panel. That that black black sort of handle on the front of that box that you're pointing at. Yeah, you see that black handle? There? Oh, that's... Lift that up and pull it out. Roll it back. That's how we loaded it. Oh yeah. Well, wow. can you believe it? An old cassette tape. Yeah. So <laughs> pop it back in. So that was how you loaded the mission data into the uh, into the, the, the computer. Right. Twin inertial navigation systems not only provided navigation information, but provided the head-up display as well, the attitude for that. Yeah. IFF was in the back in the F3, so because uh, supposedly we had more time. In reality, it wasn't quite that yeah. straightforward, but it was in the back. As were the radios, both uh, VHF, UHF, and HF radios in the back there. But we had the interrogator in the, in the back there as well. That's the one on the front console there. And that could either be operated in an automatic mode, or if you set them manually on there, when you press that button there, it would interrogate and tell you if it was friendly. Okay. It wouldn't tell you it was hostile, yeah. but it would tell you if it was friendly. Yeah, okay. You know the problem with IFF. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was there. And, and that was the kit. Um, the only other things to mention down here that were the defensive aids, chaff flares on the airplane. We had flares on the uh, engine doors at the back, 32 shots. And we had chaff in the bowl dispensers on the missile pylons, yep. programmed it there, dispensed it on here, and these were grab handles so you could look in your six o'clock. Okay. This one here, towed radar decoy. Uh, we fitted that for the knife flight in uh, 1993. Uh, that was an active jammer on a string, and we towed it behind the airplane out of the Bospod. All right. Um, this thing basically, um, smart electronics on the, in, in the pod, uh, a, a, a transmitter on the end of the string, and this basically you could program it to do anything. The general idea was some sort of centroid so that the missile went towards the jammer, not towards the aeroplane. Okay. So it missed, it was outside the lethal radius. How, how far back would that be towed? I think that's still classified, so I better not say anything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but quite close. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So uh, there, was, there was an optimum range. Obviously, if you have it too close, it, it sees you. If you yep. have it too far away, it can choose between the two. Right. So it was a right. nice compromise of yeah. what range do you want. Okay. And, uh, and that was there. So those are the cockpits. Um, as I say, the Leeming Simulator. So uh, um, I, I acquired it about five, six years ago. And uh, I thought fondly I'll return it to its former role as a simulator. Yeah. Looked underneath no wires. Oh. There's not a hope in hell. Oh. So that's when we installed the VR kit, which I'll install in a short while yeah. so that you can fly it. Uh, but... I think the capability in the VR is probably better than it was when it was in service. Okay. Certainly in terms of the visuals. Yes. The visuals are amazing. Okay. And very compulsive. You'd think you were there. So this simulator would have been used by pretty much every uh, tornado crew coming through training, or was, yeah. it, or was it just the base? When, when we first introduced the F2, the simulators were behind the schedule. So we, we introduced two things called the C-pits, right there, cockpit emergency procedure trainer. Yeah. And that literally was just a procedure trainer. It's for emergency training. 
These came in at Coningsby about 18 months after the jet arrived. Um, two, two systems at Coningsby, one at Naming, one at Lucas. Um, and these were full mission simulators, so all this lot worked as well in the, in the, in the main sims. But they had no visual. Um, they, they, our, our masters decided we didn't need it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so they said. Um, it wasn't until 1989 at Lucas that he finally got a visual system, and then it was only three screens at the front. Okay. Pilot. Yeah. So it never really worked. You'll see the VR. Awesome. Yeah. It'll take me about five minutes to fit it later on once we're done. But yep. um, yeah, so that was its history. And uh, as I say, I acquired it five years ago and uh, found a few final bits like things down here um, which uh, weren't fitted. But uh, Simon did a fantastic job on it. He really did. Yeah. Amazing. Were the injector, seat, injector seats uh, all armed and that? And did they push them straight through the first bit? Obviously, for real, yeah. Um, wow. Never in the simulator. They, no, they no. were just dummies in the sim. But, yeah, for real, it was a Martin Baker Mark 10. So, if you can probably see it, that's over there. I mean, that's why that's like that, just to punch through. It's got a parachute in there as well. We, we, didn't, uh, we didn't punch through the canopy. The, the idea was the canopy would go. Oh, um, wow. But if the canopy failed for some reason, we had MDC cord all the way up the centre, it's not on here. Oh, yeah. uh, you could punch the MDC mm, and then yeah. literally clam shells open yeah. off in the airflow and then you'd go through. Unlike the Phantom, the Phantom, the canopies had to go, otherwise you weren't coming out. But this, you could actually go through the gap, but you got rid of the Perspex first. Right. This, this is the, the seat, this is the Mark 10. So uh, it's a zero-zero seat, um, single handle. You've only got the seat pan handle there. No, no top handle like on the uh, uh, on the Phantom. Um, conventional seat. It's it was a rocket seat. Forty um, mm. G. When you go out, big big pack gets you going. Bigger pack gets you up to hundred feet above the aeroplane or so. Um, parachute in behind in the, in the back box, and then uh, drogue chute up in the top to stabilise the seat. So pull the handle, 1.4 seconds later, the, the seat starts to rise, hopefully with the canopy gone. Um, once you're out and clear, the barrister on the side would sense the height. If you're above 10, you stay in the seat. Drone uh, stabilizes you, wait until you come down below 10. Wow. Once you're below 10, uh, separate from the seat, leaving you just the harness. Um, and you would then end up attached to your parachute and by lanyard to the dinghy in the back there. So the dinghy is under that. It's green on this one. They're normally yellow, actually. That's the sort of seat that you see on the, on the demos on TV when they're underwater and they've got to figure out how to get out of it upside down underwater. Um, you, you wouldn't, if you, if you ended up in the water in your seat, you're in big trouble. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and and if, if you hadn't separated below 10, okay. you could pull that. And it was a manual separation, oh, okay. so it would it would manually separate right. from the seat. You'd have to be trained to use the seat, little alone. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Do yeah. We had we had drills. It was nice because not only did we have leg restraints, so these things here um, attached around oh. the, uh, to to straps. We we also had arm restraints. These things here came up to clips on your arms, so oh, wow. it would pull your arms in if you ejected as oh, well. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Unlike all these seats, so that was quite nice. Yeah, because your first reaction is to throw your arm out, isn't it? Um, well, it's the airflow that gets your arms, yeah. so your arms yeah. will probably flail. Yeah. The, the idea was if you could, you know, pull the handle and 
in foot of the cross. Th this is the same seat that we had in the Air Mackies. Um, okay. 339. Yeah. Yeah. Good seat. Good I, seat. I packed the um, life rafts on them for a wee while. Did you? Just before I got out of the Air Force, yeah. In, in that case, you know all about it. Yeah. Well, I've actually forgotten most of it. It's <laughs> a long time ago. It's amazing what comes back when you do these sort of yeah, things. But, yeah, uh, yeah. This this actually belongs to a local ATC unit. So, okay. Uh, they uh, they loan it for demonstration purposes. But uh, it was the forties weekend this weekend. So yeah, we've got ours. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, tomorrow. this weekend. Yeah, yeah all yeah. these guys here, I'd say, going up there. Yeah, up there. There's already yeah. fields of them up there already. It, it was very popular here, I must admit. Yeah, it was yeah. Cool. busy last Sunday. Mm. We, we had the simulator fired up. Great. And I didn't stop the whole of the day. Great. Just cycling people through. Great. Yeah, really busy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a great attraction for here, for Thorpe Camp. We've just been on a, yeah. on a private tour of the 617 Squadron okay. a yeah. few weeks ago of this end of the Woodall Spar Airfield and the, uh, who's the people bar the Wildlife yeah. Trust yeah. have put in a, a, a new uh, shed and big hangar and they're starting to push the military side because um, Guy Gibson, they've got the site there where he took off and yeah. Yeah. mosquito. But um, the the two, or well, one of the main principles is more interested in the wildlife side than the World War II side. So. I used to play golf up there when I was in the Air Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, right. golf Well, oh, there's that, um, those sheds there that still belong to Connorsby. I've been in there recently, last year, and they've still got piles of those canopy, the canopies there. Really? The glass that's here. Yeah, about yeah. 10 in a pile like that. Good Lord. That's what's made. <laughs> I know people at home in New Zealand have bought them from overseas for jet boats, you know, speed oh, boats right. and that. The Air Force is remarkably bad at that kind of thing. Mm. They're just tougher than the bin. And, uh, you know, yeah. there are lots of people out there with cockpits and things that we love. Yeah, yeah. exactly. At this point, Dave fired up the simulator and I got to have a bit of a go. The normal tornado that we use is um, uh, the Just Flight Tornado. Okay. Um, we can fire up a couple more programs that allow us to launch AI airplanes and then go chase them. And we do oh. that quite a lot. So on yeah. the tornado profile, we normally launch a bear and then go intercept the bear and fly yeah. alongside it. Um, we'll see how we go, but we, what we can probably do is launch the Spitfire from lid and then bring some hind calls in and you can see if you can go chase a hind call. Okay. So, uh, We've um, flown from lid to Bovey many years ago in the DC through. Have you? Yeah, you know, they used to take them on the bread run yeah. to Bovey and we went into Paris for the day and come back in the afternoon. I seem to remember my first ever trip with my uncle was in a car there from South End. Oh wow. Crossing the uh, crossing the channel. That's a weird car in there from yeah. Yeah. doesn't happen now, does it? No. Okay, that's all. Is Lid still operational here? As far as I know, yeah, yeah. Because I remember going there in the morning, in the morning it was all fogged out. Nothing there. And the guy parked the horn on the DC three where he could take off and make sure that you could that's local flying yeah. for you, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Takes a few minutes to boot up. Yeah, it's amazing what you've done here. I guess you've learnt a lot doing all this. Yeah. It, it, it can be flaky as well. Sometimes you you fire it up and it's been working fine, the sortie before, and the computer falls out with the programs and you know what computers are like. Just we're running about four or five programs together to make mm. it all work. Okay. And sometimes it's just flaky. But so it's just like a real jet. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of our enthusiastic flyers over the weekend pulled so hard he, uh, he broke the, uh, yeah. the mountain on the stick. Oh, so cool. we've had running repairs over the last few days. Okay. 
hopefully it's now a bit more robust. So this is what you see at the back. This is the, the selector. And we can go in, obviously we normally do the tornado, but you can go in and you have a, um, a menu of airplane types. Yep. And what we're going to do is we're going to choose a Spitfire, but you can see the sort. We can't do the Vulcan at the minute. The, uh... No, it's no good. I can't use 19 Squadron MX-92. <laughs> <laughs> Just wouldn't do. <laughs> we'll, we'll launch you from the lid and then uh, that will allow us when we're sorted to bring up some targets. That's better. So I've selected the Spitfire, I've selected the airfield, and then we, uh, we fire it up. And when it fires up, we will be in the cockpit. What I'll do now, I'll just make sure it fires up properly, but then I'll explain. On the Spitfire, it's a good model. It's, it's highly realistic. Yeah. The only thing we need to do, you, you'll get everyone flapless, so the flaps will be up. So there's no need to mess around with the flaps. Yeah. Um, the undercarriage can be quite hard to find. It's a little button and people always miss it. Yeah. It's quite important to get it out as soon as you can. Um, so I'll, I'll do that for you. Standard technique, you open up the throttles, making sure the brakes are off, it'll accelerate ahead. Um, watch for the nose to, uh, tail to rise. You'll see the horizon lift yeah. uh, and then fly it off gently, gear up and we'll, uh, we'll fly off. Um, you, you'll see around you, bear in mind, you're dynamic. So when you're looking around, you'll be looking around the aeroplane as, as it is for real. Yeah. Um, what else? Right, how you control it? You've got the standard stick, so push, pull, left, right. Yep. Um, that's the trimmer. It can be quite slow, so quite often you have to press it and hold it, press it and hold it, press it and hold it to get the, the trim to trim out. Okay. So very slow on that one. Undercarriage is that one there. See the button under the throttles? Yes. But people normally struggle to find it because you put the throttles forward and it's now back here somewhere. So. Yep. Uh, that's the gear. The flaps are on that lever, the grey lever, right behind the throttles there. Yep. I can't, can't see that. That one there. Oh, okay, yep. And it's a centred thing, so it's up, back to the centre, up, back to the centre, down, back to the centre, that kind of movement. Okay. Um, so gear, flaps, you won't need speed brakes in a Spitfire. It, it'll, it'll react on the throttle. Yeah, um, And then obviously you'll be looking, you'll be in the headset. Yep. Now this simulator you've just taken me through uh, a flight in a Spitfire and also in a Lancaster flying Indeed. down the, the Mona uh, Valley into the into the dam. Um, incredible and you know doing that in the tornado cockpit was pretty special so um, how do how does this work? Do, do you have people book and come regularly? We do we, we run it as a charitable effort the, the museum here is a charity yeah. and uh, so we don't charge people for coming in uh, so it's a bit of a community project if you will um, yeah, we do. We run sessions during the week, normally an hour or two, yeah. and people come in and fly. Normally the tornado first. We made an exception for you today. We've got yeah. the historic aeroplanes up. Yeah. But then we can fly any other aeroplane. You know, once you get the headset on, you're in a virtual cockpit. 
It can be anything. So it could be a hawk, it could be a spitfire, it could be a Lancaster, it could be a tornado. Fantastic. And we, we tend to fly a little bit of everything for everybody. Yeah, brilliant. Um, now, as well as being an uh, ex-navigator and having the uh, simulator here, you're also uh, a well-known author. Can tell me about your books. Yeah, I, I started writing when I retired from the Air Force, and uh, I started with a factual book called The Phantom in Focus, and that was a general canter along the ground about the Phantom. So what it did, how it operated, where we operated, guns, missiles, that kind of stuff. So a big look at the, the airplane overall. And then I branched off. I did the same on the Tornado F3, mm -hmm. uh, called Tornado F3 in Focus, and then branched off and did uh, one about the Falklands, yeah. so the, the experiences I had down there particularly bringing a phantom back home from the Falklands, which was quite exciting. Right. Uh, and then other things from my past, um, like uh, operational testing, which I did in the Air Force. Uh, so I, I ended up with about seven, uh, seven uh, volumes in the end. I also branched out into novels. So I, uh, I wrote a series of novels, about seven of those as well, about the epic exploits of a phantom crew in the Cold War. Okay. And uh, so a little bit of fun outside the, the, the serious factual stuff. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about uh, operating in the Falklands. When did you go down and what were you doing there? My first time was uh, we couldn't get the Phantom down there during the war yeah. because there wasn't a runway long enough to operate it. So it was about uh, 18 months after the war had ended before the Phantom got down there. And uh, we operated out of Stanley on 6,000 foot of... Uh, I was going to say concrete, but it was actually uh, metal matting. It was oh, the AM2 matting, yeah. and they laid it over the uh, the original runway. So we only had 6,000 feet, so it was quite interesting to operate from there. We were flying a heavy Phantom with a full weapons load, including the gun, and not many diversions, because the Argentinians didn't really want to see us at that point. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we, we landed with quite a lot of petrol on board. Okay. Um, so it was, an, it was an interesting time, but I was sent down there the first time to bring an aeroplane home. Okay. So we actually deployed, uh, climbed in the aeroplane. Uh, eight hours later, we were in Ascension Island, having tanked about four or five times from a VC-10. Yep. And then the following day, another nine and a half hours back to Coningsby. So it was, a, it was an epic voyage across the world. Yeah, yeah it sounds like it. Um, and uh, what other deployments did you uh, fly on? Well, I, the, my second time down in the Falklands was as boss of the flight down there. So yeah. I was OC-14-35 flight, a very famous outfit from Malta days during World War II. Yeah. Uh, so I had four tornadoes, 55 guys, uh, including aircrew and ground crew. And uh, our job was to uh, uh, guard the islands, just make sure the Argentinians didn't decide to pop back un un unexpected. Right. Um, we were there really as a holding operation. So, you know, if, uh, if ever there was suggestion that we were going to be in trouble... The UK would have reinforced us uh, quite quickly, I would right. imagine. Right. But yeah, running the flight down there, having your own little train set with uh, a very simple mandate. Just watch the islands and keep them, uh, keep them safe. And the islanders were absolutely magnificent. They were superb people. Very, very patriotic. Way more patriotic than even me. And, uh, <laughs> but they were, they were lovely people. And they really were keen to see us down there. Did you get away with uh, doing a few things that you couldn't do at home, yeah, low flying, that sort of thing? Um, well, the, the surprising thing was we never got noise complaints. The, the normal complaints we got <laughs> were when we didn't go to see the islanders oh. every now and again, which is a, a nice reversal from the UK flying. Absolutely. But yes, the, the whole of the two islands was a low flying area, and we operated at 250 feet all the way throughout. Right. Fully armed, because yep. there was still a threat, potentially. And uh, yeah, it was uh, quite the excitement. Is there still a unit down there protecting you? Yes. The, 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 um, 
The tornadoes were replaced by the typhoon, yeah. and the typhoon, uh, there are now aeroplanes down in the Falklands uh, holding a quick reaction alert down there as we speak. Okay. Was it seen as um, a really good posting to go to this overseas deployment where you know nothing's really going to happen usually? Um, yeah. Um, now, the Falklands was a, a, a little bit of a challenge because, of course, you were off for four months. Uh, some of the guys did six months. Um, you were leaving your family behind, so there's always that draw. Um, but having said that, it was it was quite the opportunity. I was lucky enough, though, to do two tours in the United States as well. Oh, wow. So I did one tour in uh, in Texas doing information operations, so sort of computer-based type stuff. Yeah. And another tour as the uh, Air Warfare Center liaison officer down at Nellis Air Force Base in uh, Las Vegas. Okay. So it was a tough duty, but somebody had to do it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. So what sort of things were you involved with there? Um, mainly testing. We, we took airplanes across from the UK. We would do testing on the ranges. Um, we, we did an awful lot of testing with the Typhoon, the Tornado, the Jaguar, um, and a lot of the heavy airplanes as well, C-130, Nimrod. So uh, across the board. We had an annual exercise called High Rider. We would go across, we'd operate from the, the, uh, the Nevada area. Um, we'd do testing uh, uh, during a, a, a sequence of trials. So quite exciting stuff. And I was the uh, liaison officer there, and I had a, a, a small test team working for me in Las Vegas. Okay. Oh, that sounds interesting. Um, I know that you've been on a lot of podcasts uh, in the past and, and you know, much, with much more depth, so people can look up uh, mm. more depth on that sort of thing. Um, we're at Thorpe Camp, your simulators uh, set up here, and can you tell me a little bit about the community here, the museum? And yeah, the museum, well, Thorpe Camp itself, it was a satellite from Woodall Spar Airfield, very famous, you know, during the Dambusters years. Um, after the war, it was closed down. It became a prisoner of war camp, briefly. Oh. Um, more recently, the National Trust took it over, and the, uh, the museum here are guests, effectively. Yeah. Um, it's a lovely little museum. It's got some fantastic exhibits around the, uh, the bazaars. They have a Lancaster cockpit, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. They have a hangar with uh, old airplanes in, a built-from-scratch Sopwith Camel, right. uh, a Mugol replica, okay. uh, Tiger Moth. Uh, so that, that's in the Hodgson hangar. Um, but we're in the shower block where the, the simulator uh, lives. We've got some of our old memorabilia from uh, Tornado conversion unit days. Uh, a, a CSAS um, um, trainer over there. That was our fly-by-wire system. Okay. The automatic flight director system over the other side. That was the uh, the, the autopilot. Um, so various things that have been uh, collected together. So this is more the Cold War area in the shower block here. But some superb exhibits around the uh, the museum. And the most obvious when you first walk in through the gate, big old lightning on the right-hand side there. Yeah. Ex-Trouble 1 Squadron, ex-65 uh, uh, Squadron down at Coltishaw, and also a Bloodhound missile with its, uh, with its radar dish, yep. uh, which would have been very active during the Cold War. Right, uh, and they were based here at Scampton? Um, not, I don't think at Scampton, but the, the missiles were at Northcotes, okay. they were at Witten, they were at Wattisham down in Suffolk, so okay. spread around the country and protecting the eastern, sea, uh, the eastern uh, coast of the UK. Okay, yep, yep. And uh, also there's a Wessex helicopter. There is a Wessex. That's only arrived recently. Um, as you can probably see, it's a, it's a bit of a long-term project. Yeah. It's looking a bit sad for itself at the minute, but the guys already have a plan to, uh, to, to tweak it and bring it back to its uh, former glory. Fantastic. Uh, and, of course, one of the other things that you do uh, on Mondays is you're a guide at the BBMF. The I am. Battle of Britain mm. Memorial Flight. Can mm. you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, well, the, the, uh, the visitor centre is run by the county council. Um, it's um, 
it's there to allow visitors to go in and see the aeroplanes, the historic aeroplanes. Um, and uh, I, I run, uh, run the tours on the Monday, but we have teams on each of the, uh, the weekdays, so Monday through Friday. Um, and uh, normally about six, uh, about a dozen tours a day. Yeah. Um, the idea is not only to see the aeroplanes, but also to hear some of the stories about some of the people that flew them during the war. Yeah. And there are some remarkable stories which, uh, which make the hairs on your neck stand on end. And uh, I know you're going down there later on today and you'll, yes. you'll hear some of those stories yeah. from, uh, from the guide that you'll meet. I'm looking forward to it very much so. Well, thank you very much for allowing me to pop in and, and see all this uh, here. It's uh, been great to meet you. And, you um, too. Yeah, cheers. My pleasure. And, uh, and, and if you're ever back in the UK, do come back. Thank you, I will. Cheers. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.